During this episode, people around the world will consume about 70 million cups of coffee. This enormous thirst makes it one of the most traded agricultural commodities and tens of millions of small producers make their living growing coffee. Well, a lot of them struggle to do so. Most of the coffee we consume is traded on exchanges with volatile prices. At the point of this recording, green coffee beans sell for as little as $1 per pound, which is less than the production costs. In stark contrast, we as consumers are happy to pay 5 euro or even more for just a single cup of high quality coffee. To evade that coffee paradox, a team of four coffee enthusiasts set out to form the Coffee Collective back in 2007. Their mission? Create the best coffee experiences in the world while bringing better returns to the farmers. They've introduced a new form of transparency through working directly with the producers and for example putting the percentage they've paid above market value on every bag of beans. You're listening to The Idealists with me Simon and my co-host Celia. For today's episode, we joined Klaus Thompson, co-founder of Coffee Collective at their Copenhagen-based roastery. He's in charge of marketing and responsible for the coffee quality across their four locations. After more than a decade of non-stop commitment to coffee and farmers, Klaus belongs to a new generation of entrepreneurs striving to balance purpose and profit. Sounds easier said than done. So we asked, isn't there a quicker way to make money than changing a whole industry, bean by bean? Absolutely. Uh, making money was never uh, even the slightest motivation for us, uh, the founders of this company. Um, we, were, we were basically uh, three, at that time, young guys um, who had been working in coffee for a number of years. In the same company, it was called Estate Coffee. It was uh, founded uh, by, I would say, probably the most famous Danish food entrepreneur, in, especially in those years, Klaus Meyer, who has who's done tremendous things for, for Denmark uh, as a whole in, in terms of food and discovery of things. And we were working in different departments in that company. Um, Peter, who is one of the co-founders, Peter Dupont, he, was, um, he had actually opened their first coffee shop, uh, I think, when was that? All the way back in like 2000 or something like quite early on, uh, one of the first coffee shops in Copenhagen. And he has since uh, then become a, a partner in the roastery that they had opened in, uh, in Valby, a part of Copenhagen. Uh, so he was running the roastery. I was running their coffee shop, uh, basically taking over Peter's job. And then Casper, who's the third co-founder, he was in their wholesale department, so selling coffee to other companies. So you knew each other before then? Yeah, and, we and knew each other and, and were like, uh, we were doing a lot of things like uh, I was in these coffee competitions and, and Peter especially was a huge part of my training and my team around that. And uh, and uh, Casper was like, yeah, also a big part of it and, and very sort of young and energetic and and so we were in these three different departments and um, we kind of, we were really coffee geeky, I would say. We were spending a lot of times like, you know, outside job as well, like investigating coffee, meeting up, tasting, brewing, all these sort of things. And then um, I had won the, the World Barista Championship um, with Peter as, as my main coach. And uh, that had sent me traveling all over the world from Tokyo to Seattle to Cape Town doing talks on coffee, but for me personally, also learning a lot about coffee in different uh, cultures. And I'd kind of set up my own little private company doing these talks and events. Um, and while I was doing that, I, I kind of felt a little like lonely as well, because you're giving talks and you're not getting a lot back and you're kind of like, 
you know, you're out there, but you're not getting uh, pushed either. You're not getting questioned. Nobody calls you out on, on your bullshit. So, uh, so I was kind of missing like a, a more tight group of people to work with. And at the same time, Casper and Peter and I started talking about all these things in the coffee market that we felt could be a lot better than it was. We both felt that uh, like overall, when you looked at the coffee markets, we felt like something was terribly wrong. Um, we had this experience in that company and, and looking at the market that there was a lot of producers out there producing amazing coffees, yet they weren't getting paid very well. Did you visit them already back then or how did you, how did you get to know the farmers? Yeah, we were, we were spending time at Origin and Peter had actually, when, when I took over his job at the state, actually, he had gone to Nicaragua to write his master thesis on the water wastage from coffee farms. So he'd spent, uh, I think, four months in a small but very famous coffee producing town in Nicaragua. And, um, and there he'd really, you know, seen the everyday life living there, you know, where like he was really, you know, standing out in the crowd there, like uh, from Denmark, but he'd really seen sort of what actually is the reality of coffee farming. And so there was a lot of experience there. He was studying um, international development and biology, uh, water, yeah, wastewater uh, management. So he was really into this kind of like, what, what is the reality there and how can you be part of developing um, these poor areas as well? So that, that became his experience, I think, became an integral part of forming our ideas and about the company in general. And so we sat down and looked at this market and was at the end of what was dubbed the coffee crisis, which was a crisis that is actually being repeated today where farmers were getting less than the cost of production for coffee. And at the same time, you know, we were looking at, you know, the markets in Europe where Starbucks was expanding like crazy and it seemed like coffee consumption was really getting traction. It still wasn't big in Copenhagen, but we as baristas could tell that, hey, people are really into this. Like it's not a niche product. It's actually a lot of people who find it exciting. And so there was a consumer willingness to pay a premium price for coffee. Like the price for a cup of coffee on the high streets of Europe were getting insane at the point. Like there was so much money at the same time as farmers not getting paid even the cost of production. So that was completely absurd. Uh, it's, it's a complete paradox that you have so much money and yet farmers aren't being paid well. So we sat down, we started talking about this and said, well, that paradox, we can change around. If we can take control of this situation, we can actually say that there's no excuse for not bringing value out to farmers. We can actually maybe build a better model. So we get the money that is coming in from the, the willing customers willing to pay it. And we can actually make sure we get it out to the farmers. How, do you, how did you identify the levers for, for doing so? I mean, there are probably hundreds or, or thousands of possibilities to do so but um, what was how did you identify this because I think transparency is one of your kind of key actions you do and, and, and doing since then I think um, how did you end up with transparency yeah I think we we could see immediately um, from get-go that we we had an idea that if we are transparent about what we bring out to the farmers and we pay them well and then I think it came back to us having that appreciation as baristas that when we talked to customers, we could see they were really into uh, the sustainable parts of the business. They were into 
not only learning about the history behind the product, like storytelling was this big marketing concept that was up in the time. <laughs> and coffee was always used as a fantastic example of storytelling. And I felt half the time I felt it was just pure bullshit because it was just like more about telling a story to make it romantic. Where we felt like, no, 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 it has to be the real story behind the product. And if it is real, and if you can back it up and tell that, well, the farmer's actually gotten good value for this coffee, you could just tell by the look of the eyes of the consumers that they were into it. And so whenever people said like, ah, you know, consumers don't care, we had just the complete opposite experience personally. And that made us like believe that, no, no, they're wrong. We're right in this. Customers do care. And so, yeah, so transparency was a way of saying, well, if we're transparent about what we do, it makes it easier to communicate all this. We also felt that there was a necessity to go visit the producers every year. Estate Coffee was actually buying some of their coffees in a similar model. Like they were actually buying it direct with some of the coffees. Uh, some of them, they'd been to visit the farmers. But we'd also seen some issues that they weren't doing with, with all the coffees, first of all. And that made the communication to us a bit unclear. Like, and I th still think that's actually a huge issue in the industry today, that some roasters will do it with one or two coffees. And then it's almost a little bit like greenwashing. Because you can always point to those coffees as, oh, we have this direct relationship. And then you're buying 90% of your coffee through a broker who's maybe even buying it, you know, through several steps. And along the way, you lose, like, you lose the transparency, you lose the overview of what of that portion of money that you paid actually went to the farmer. Like, what can you guarantee? So we wanted to make sure that we committed 100% to it. Um, and that is also the term direct trading? Yeah, so we, we came up with this term, or we actually borrowed the term from some uh, groceries in the United States that we, uh, we started talking to, because we could see they were doing something very similar to what we were planning to do. Like uh, a very famous coffee buyer called Jeff Watts had actually written a blog post where he was like telling these are the principle that at their company they were working for named uh, direct trade. And we were looking at it as like, hey, this is all the stuff we've been talking about. Um, also with some different nuances. Like they, they wanted the farmers to commit to certain vague practices in terms of uh, social responsibility and so on. But they weren't really defined. But we said, we don't actually want to demand anything. The only demand here is that is on us as a roaster. We don't get to ask anything from the farmers until we commit to paying a high price. Um, so we we used that term direct trade because it was very clear, like it put an idea in people's head, like it's direct and there's something about trade. And the idea was not to make it a, a big certification, but it was to make it something where people would be interested in what is that? And you would have a, a open and access point for dialogue, a touch point where people would hopefully ask more questions about what you're doing. And you said, you know, setting the price uh, right in, in your sense is that the farmer actually could make a living. Yeah, but, um, but more than that, because I think that's what fair trade does. Mm -hmm. Fair trade sets a minimum price that should basically be like the lowest price anyone could ever pay for coffee. Because below that price, it's you can't really make a living as a farmer. But when we're talking specialty coffee, we're talking coffee that requires more effort from the farmer for us to achieve you know, a more superb flavor in the cup. That requires far more than that. So we wanted to negotiate prices directly with farmers based on the quality that they produce so that we can look them in the eye and say, I think you made something extraordinary here. This tastes amazing. I don't see any reason why consumers in Denmark shouldn't pay a really high price for this coffee so I can pay you really well. 
if you look at your packaging, right? You, you On every bag of beans, you write the percentage of how much you paid more for that uh, green beans, I think, um, to, to, um, to the farmer. Do customers have questions about that or do they just love the transparency or what, what, how does this, you know, come across to the customers? I think mostly it's, it comes across as a, again, a touch point, a starting point where it doesn't explain much on its own, but it, it does say something about, well, wait, they're, they're actually willing to show the price. I mean, imagine you went into a clothing shop and you looked at a shirt and set the cost of production in the shirt. You'd, You'd probably be, be pretty surprised. And and to any clothing vendor, it seemed like that's suicide for your business if you start doing that. And so people thought it would be the same for us, like showing all the the prices. People are like, well, aren't people going to say like, why are we paying this much when you paid this? How much is it actually? Let's let's talk money. I mean, it's, uh, oh, I'm so bad like with the actual numbers. Uh, I mean, the, the price we pay over the market price will easily be uh, 130% and sometimes it's like 480%. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so it's so much more than the market price. Yeah. Um, still, when you look at a bag of coffee, if you start doing the numbers, you know, it seems like little, uh, like it's, you know, it's a big gap from what we paid to what you as a consumer pay. But here's where I think it gets really interesting is that, again, we have so much faith in customers because we know that people can see through they know that, yeah, of course, it costs less for us to buy the green coffee. And maybe they don't know it, but there's like 20% roast loss, like from the green coffee weight to you roast the coffee, there's a lot of evaporation of water, so it wastes less. Of course, they know there's expenses to gas, to packaging, to salaries, all these things. So I think it actually, it's not that, like we've, we've actually been surprised. We never had any bad criticism where people have gone, wait, this is the cost and you're charging this? On the contrary, we've only had positive in people saying like, wow, impressed that you were so honest about it. Because it is an industry that is, you know, you can pay the same actually price for a bag of coffee as ours in a number of places. Like even the supermarkets now have coffees that charge the same. But we have zero transparency. Right, And they, they buy the green beans for less than a dollar per yes, pound. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Where we are buying some of our at six dollars a pound to put into perspective. Yeah. And you even some really like uh, like our most expensive is fifty dollars per pound, <laughs> so like uh, that's of course the uh, extreme, but it's to showcase again like that is the difference. And it's interesting we often compare to wine and other products. And in wine, yes, you can buy really cheap wines, but if you do that, you kind of know what you're buying. Like, and you're probably not gonna sit with a glass Saturday night and swirl it around. You're gonna put that into a sauce or something. But any consumer, even the ones who will just buy the cheap wines, they know that there are wines out there that are so expensive and they know there's like something that is worth paying for. And I think that's where we're finally getting to with coffee, that we didn't have the first many years of our business. But this appreciation that there are finer coffees out there that are really worth paying for. You touched upon the cost of not only producing, but also having the staff costs which are especially high here in Denmark or in Scandinavia as well. And I think 90% of your gross profit goes into, into uh, labor costs. Um, why Denmark then? I mean, just because we are from Denmark. Uh, we are, you know, all four of, uh, four of us that originally founded the company from, or the three of us. Actually, we had a fourth um, member when we founded the company. He was Swedish. Uh, but I moved to Copenhagen and uh, he left uh, two years ago to move back to Sweden. But the three of us uh, are from Denmark and we, 
I don't we feel at home here. Like Copenhagen is a fantastic city. Uh, at the time, it was just where we were, and then now it's quite interesting to see that Copenhagen has become this like hub of uh, how to say like gastronomical entrepreneurship globally, which is amazing. That wasn't the case 12 years ago. Like uh, we we never really saw it coming, but I think that whole being part of that like melting pot of you know Noma and Geranium and Relay and all these places doing super interesting things in food and then Mikela and Toil you know exploding people's minds in beers and I think and also the whole a, farmers um what's the term from farm to table yes. is sort of the same from seeds or from farmers to cup yeah, in your exactly. way. So that's yeah. a movement as well that you probably benefit from or yeah, contributed to. Benefiting from that kind of like uh, this excitement about um, whatever you sort of digest, I would say, or whatever you put in your face. <laughs> and it is quite funny because I, I remember, especially in the beginning, people were saying like, oh, it's such a small niche with this specialty coffee. And we're like, yeah, okay, maybe, yeah. But that's fine with us. Like, But so many cater. people drink coffee, so that's yeah, a huge Yeah, so it's not really a niche. I mean, it's like I saw a report once that like 94% of Danish households have coffee in them. Like they have a coffee machine or will brew coffee regularly. And the Danes are consuming a lot of coffee yes. uh, compared globally, right? Yeah, so we're typically five. like, yeah, in the top yeah five or fourth position every year. So, so that's not really a niche. And then... With specialty coffee as well, we were like, well, even if it's a niche, we'll just cater to that niche. That, like, we have faith that if we like it, there's probably other people out there who like it too. Um, and the interesting thing is that I don't really think, in like, no matter how you look at it, that it's a niche. Because there is such a large percentage of people, especially in Denmark and especially in Copenhagen, who are really into food in some way or another, food or drink. Uh, they're into learning about the back history of where the produce that they're cooking at home uh, with came from, or they're into going to restaurants, or they're into experiences. And so when you put all that together, there's actually, a, I saw a report earlier this year that said that three out of four people actually identify themselves as some sort of like, maybe not foodie, but some sort of person who's interested in what they digest. So that's actually the majority of people. So, yeah. And I ask about Denmark because you are not selling your coffee just in your shops. You also sell them to other restaurants, for example, through wholesale. Yeah. And you also do a subscription service, which is available worldwide. Right? Yes. Yeah. What are your plans towards going global or, or do you ship already to, to many other countries or how does this work? Yeah, we do. When we started out, we, uh, we really thought about we wanted to be a local roastery. Like we wanted to be Copenhagen based. We wanted to have you know, supply uh, cafes and restaurants around Copenhagen as like a local micro-roastery. And um, and that that is still like a big part of us to be local and be in touch with our customers, um, both wholesale, but also the coffee shop customers. At the same time, I remember like one of the first, like when we we're starting out the company, one of the first things I, I advise that you're giving is that as an entrepreneur in Denmark, you have to think outside Danish borders uh, because it is such a small country. And I remember at the time being a little bit like, yeah, I, I don't like that. Like, I, we just want to be local. And so we focused just very much on, on being local. And then I think just by popular demand, like people writing us from abroad and really wanting us, we slowly started growing outside of Copenhagen and outside of Denmark. 
And then we, from the beginning, we we opened a web shop just because we kind of felt like, well, if you're in Jutland and you want our coffee, you should be able to order it. Uh, and so it was really for the Danish market. Uh, and that web shop just slowly started growing and we got more and more international when was customers. That? that was throughout like 2008, 9, 10. And it's, since then, it's just grown steadily. And now we're shipping like our subscription is shipping to like, I think 46 or 47 different countries uh, around the world. Every, like everything. One of our biggest markets is uh, South Korea. And the United States gets a lot of coffee. Um, and wholesale as well has grown. Like we're shipping coffee to Japan and, you know, yeah, <laughs> all over the world. We mostly try to focus our efforts on Northern Europe because it's a little closer to home. But it's just so interesting to see that because they can't really get what we deliver um, in these other markets in terms of the sustainability and transparency and prices and the sort of the taste quality that we deliver, um, there's just this big demand for it. And yeah, we are happy, happy supplying them. Right. And is it also a brand game a little bit because um, if you if you think about it, Coffee Collective has become maybe you know at, at least in the in the scene a very well known brand I think and you recently re kind of redesigned your brand and your website and um, all that. So is this something to factor in into Definitely. that creation? And I have to be honest, I think when we started out um, 12 years ago, it was actually not that common that people had such a coherent branding as we had at the time. And it was something that, uh, it was actually a big motivator, especially for me and Casper, in starting the company, was that we felt we were both very much into design and into like music and arts and all these different things. And we really wanted to create a company where it was like a holistic approach to the experience you had as a consumer. So we we teamed up with a branding agency that was starting up. They were, they were actually also four founders who had just started up at the same time and they wanted to use us as a showcase back then. And so we actually came out with this full package that typically groceries didn't have. Like usually they just had some brown paper bags and a logo with a coffee bean in it. So we had all this long list of, we didn't want any of that. We wanted to be like a fresh, multicolored, white bags, all these like different things that you didn't see. And then since then, that has become the industry standard. Like now you'll see micro roasteries who have like the most impressive packaging of any product that I can speak of actually. Um, and like amazing brand uh, experience design and everything before they've even roasted their first coffee. Which to me is maybe like, we have to be careful as an industry not overdoing it. We, we have to be careful that it doesn't become like, Swiss chocolate that's just packaging and no uh, core quality in the product. Um, be careful about what you say yeah, about Swiss chocolate. With it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I'm going to get kicked under the table here, but uh, there are exceptions, of course. But I think sometimes you just have these products where it's like it's too much branding and packaging and not actually like, like delivering, delivering the on the quality. Mm. Um, But we also, we did the rebranding because out of our own sort of desire that we had, we had some, especially with the bags, we really had a desire that we wanted to showcase the farmer even more. Like we wanted their name to be the most visible part of the bags. Like I kind of feel bad that sometimes if you were like standing 10 meters away from a, a, a retail shelf, you could just make out our logo, but you had no way of making out the farmer name. Like you had to get really close to seeing that. And that for me didn't feel like what we were about, like, um, and we all agreed that that should actually be bigger font than our name on the backs. 
And then we we also felt that we just wanted to do something new. Like we had the same kind of branding for over 10 years, actually. And so we felt it was time to show, well, what are we going to look like the next 10 years? And we've developed as a company, we've grown, we have, you know, gotten more precise about what our values are. So we could kind of get that more into play uh, in our branding as well. And you're, you're speaking of it and you're approaching 50 employees around that time? Actually, like that? we're about 70 employees 70. now in total, wow. but it, it roughly, uh, yeah, it's roughly if you, if you convert it into full-time positions, 45, right. 50, uh, yeah. And uh, your sustainability report says also it's a 50% male and you're from 10 or more different um, countries, yeah. your, your, yeah. your people. And speaking of values, how, how do you um, get those people under, under, one, under one head? How, how, how do you communicate that to all of, all of them? And how do you keep up that consistent quality across the shops? I think fortunately we have a we have a really strong foundation since the very beginning that the company grew out of you know just us owners doing everything like we were roasting the coffee we were out wholesaling and uh, we were also the baristas in our first coffee shop um, so we were standing there next to other people and especially in the beginning you know you'd just be standing next to them every day so it was like a soft transfer of your values every day and they would see how we were doing things. And then as we uh, we grew, we were, especially when we opened the food market, Torhallerne shop, we we suddenly like tripled our amount of staff. And it, it really was a big change going from us being next to them to suddenly not being next to staff all the time. Um, and at that point, we really invested heavily in, uh, and over the coming years, we invested heavily in in building the structure that would ensure that the values, the, um, the way we do service, the way we talk about coffee, the way we share knowledge became an integral part of the business. And we've actually spent quite a number of years, instead of just opening new shops, just building on that backbone, building on what are the systems inside the company that will support that for future growth. But also because we are in an industry where we have really good staff retention But still, we you know we have a lot of young people as well who come in and work here for maybe a year, and then maybe they want to study or maybe they want to travel or something. So there's a natural shift um, that will always be in in this profession, in the service industry in general. So we really have to have a system where people get the level of education that that we want, and they get to the quality level in their craftsmanship that that we demand relatively fast, and then. But also that if they are people who want to stay with us, there's room for growth, there's room for staying here, there's room for building on your, uh, your sort of your skill level and uh, and growth. And it means that we have a number of staff members who've been here for many many years. Um, some of them are approaching their tenth anniversary actually in the company, which is incredible to think of because typically it's an industry where people are huge turnover. Yeah, huge turnover, and you know you have. A lot of people looking at the baristas and saying, oh, when are you going to get a real job? Which is so idiotic to me because this is a real job. This is a, actually a really good um, career opportunity to work in something that provides value to yourself on more levels than just making money and something where you get to work with people and you get to work with a super interesting product. We were talking about the values and, and you opened your fourth shop, I think, uh, last year or two years ago, last year. Yeah, um, I'm also in doubt now. <laughs> and um, of course, I, I have to say we're, we are terribly biased because uh, we, we tried 
every one of them multiple times, maybe a week or something like that. But what would surprised me, what really struck me is that the consistency of the quality throughout years um, and every single time. And I think that's really unique because um, from my experience, a lot of, you know, a lot of the quality comes from the barista as well. And, you know, if every step of the process got, got right, um, you you then get the, the proper quality. And um, do you have, you know, are your demands so high or what is the secret behind that consistent quality, especially with a product that is that's living, right? Coffee is not a dead product. You can deliver like on a thousands unit basis. You, you have to get it right every time. Yeah. Right? How do you do that? So I think one of the, the first things is that we really think about the whole coffee chain very holistically. So when then that's the name, the reason for the name, the coffee collective is because we see it as a collective effort. Like you can't just single out one part of the chain and say, that's the important part. I see some roasteries thinking that they're the important part. But, you know, they're 100% dependent on whoever brews their coffee. Like, they will never be better than how it was brewed. And at the same time, they're never any better than what the farmer that they bought coffee from has delivered to them. And so we try to not get sucked down the rabbit hole on one little aspect uh, of it, but rather to, to try and look at everything from seed, involve ourselves 100% with the farmers in, in how they produce the coffee, uh, take charge of you know everything from processing to shipping to how we store it here in Denmark. Then how obviously how we roast it, geek that out completely and in quality control every single batch that we roast. But then deliver it all the way down to to the level where you experience it to the actual cup. And I think the uh, which is not a secret, but I would say the the secret sauce to the company is probably that we started as baristas. Like we have worked the floor for so long. We have that intrinsic appreciation of how hard it actually is to be on your feet eight hours a day serving customers. It's tremendously fun. It's also really stressful at times and it demands a lot. And it's not for everybody to, to do that work, but we have the appreciation of how important it is. And we know that if they don't deliver on it, all these steps, like the hundreds of people of work that has gone into the coffee before it reaches the cup, that's all lost. If that person at the end isn't brewing it, like with the utmost attention and isn't serving it in the best possible way, creating that experience that will lift it. So I think that goes into everything that we are not just, you know, we're not just founders in the way that we're investors or we had this great idea about starting a coffee business and and something. We, and, and see, I, I think that's where it goes wrong for a lot of companies that they just see this staff changeover as something that's super annoying. And a lot of them feel like, oh, we're just like, you know, it's like pouring water into a bucket with a hole in because they're just leaving again. So why why do we spend this much time training the staff if they're just leaving? Well, we see it completely differently. We we see it as as that is the most important part in delivering uh, the quality, and we don't see them as uh, something that's expendable. Like we don't see that as just people who are in and out, or you know, we really have a lot of appreciation of the work they do and want to create the best work environment we can. Um, and also to, you know, a lot of them are young people who are here in very formative years. And so give them a good experience. And hopefully when they leave, they had, you know, great years with us. You inspire people. Doesn't matter if it's the farmers, if it's the customers, if it's the baristas that you work with or that are working in other places. Is, is this collective way of seeing or yeah your business the only way to sort of safe coffee, the coffee industry? 
Yeah, so that's a big question because um, when you look at the whole coffee industry, like specialty coffee uh, as you know, being the premium quality is still a small segment of the market. And the way we work, I think actually is, like I have a core belief, is the only way to really do something serious with specialty coffee. I don't think, you know, not caring about where the coffee comes from and not really delivering on the promise of what you pay to the farmers and trying to squeeze money out of yourself to give to farmers. I, I don't think if you're not doing that, I don't think it is actually sustainable. And I think in, in coffee, yes, the, the, the market price is very much dependent on how much coffee, you know, the regular supply and demand uh, mechanisms, how much coffee does Vietnam and Brazil produce in a given year. And so there's mechanisms that we can't, we can't basically do anything about. But we can do a big thing about the, the market that we are in, in the specialty coffee market. And I think with transparency is that, you know, yes, we are only buying, you know, a relatively small amount of coffee, even for the Danish uh, consuming market. But by putting transparency on the top of the agenda, I think we can create a ripple effect. We can, you know, get people to ask questions. And the more people who become aware of it, the more people who listen to this podcast, for example, and start thinking about it, will go out into the supermarket and look at the retail shelves and see, you know, this uh, tempting offer of uh, four bags of coffee for 100 kroners. I saw uh, my local supermarket had it on just the other day. And it's just, for me, it's appalling. It's, it's at a price where you're looking at that coffee and just know there's no possible way that has been beneficial for the farmers. They have not made money on that coffee. They have most likely lost money producing that coffee. But it's, so it's basically like a modern slavery. And the supermarkets are doing it because they can take the hit. They will lure coffee like people in with a big offer and they'll hopefully buy a lot of other groceries. But it's just not sustainable. Um, and so hopefully through our actions, we can, we can provoke, we can disrupt a little bit. We can get people to think about their actions and how it transfers into real action on a, on a bigger level. Um, so it's also about creating a new norm? Yeah, a new norm and a way of saying that. And also for our industry, like in specialty coffee, I mean, there's, uh, as you mentioned, there's like, there's so many new roasteries, so many coffee shops opening up in Copenhagen. And a lot of them are doing great work. They're doing great branding. The shops are looking amazingly beautiful. But I think this should, like, just as you as a consumer by now expect latte art in your cappuccino, you expect baristas to know how to form milk, I hope that we can push consumers to expect that people will be transparent, expect that they will provide, you know, what value did they really bring back. And if they can't, I would love consumers to take action and say, well, I'm not going to buy my coffee from you. Your shop looks nice. You, you, on the surface, everything looks like you're doing the right thing. But if you can't actually back it up, This is just as important for me as the latte art or whatever else. Yeah. And if you if you if we zoom out a little bit and think about changing industries, um, I think there's maybe two actual ways to do it. One thing, one one way to do it is become a lighthouse and become like a good example of how to do it, and let people know of it, and um, kind of hope for for others to be inspired. And the other way would be through scale, right? Mm. Scale that model so that you actually show by numbers that works and, and yeah. others, you know, get drawn into it if they want it or not. Yeah. Where would, would you see in, on that? Well, we're, we're definitely on the first one, <laughs> on the beacon of, of transparency. And it's something that, that has also, and, and I think that's also part of why we get the international uh, orders because 
people know us for this and we give like peter especially my who's uh, one of my co-founders and ceo of the company has recently the la- spent the last two years working uh, on an organization called transparent trade and uh, and he's basically been one of the driving forces behind what is called the pledge which is a pledge that we got 15 roasteries to sign in terms of pledging that we will provide full transparency that we will not you know just have a couple of showcase coffees, but also say if if it wasn't bought directly, then we will say exactly how much wasn't bought, so you can't mask anything, and be peer reviewed. And as soon as that pledge launched, which is about a month ago, fifteen other roasteries instantly joined, and more and more are calling every week to say we want to be part of this. So that's where it gets really optimistic for me because I can see that. By, through our actions, we can inspire others and we can get all these other groceries to take action. And the more who will join, yeah, the bigger it will become in scale as well. I also have a, or we have a, a big belief that in our company, I mean, we will never be, you know, the new Starbucks. We have no ambitions for that. But we also have more ambitions than just being, you know, small and in Copenhagen. I really think that, and and this goes back to all the investments we've done internally in the company in the last years, is that we can see that we can grow the company. So this is why it means so much to me to hear you say that you you can see that level of consistency now, just because that is exactly what we can do. And we can see by growing, we can actually invest more into the quality. We can suddenly we can provide more training to our staff. Now we have, besides our really rigorous um training that we do in the beginning, we have um workshops almost every month for staff members that are, you know, we pay them to come in for, you know, long, sometimes half a day, sometimes full day workshops where we just work on different aspects of coffee. And again, sometimes it can be something that just provides them more knowledge about what happens on farm level. Other times it can be focusing on how do we provide exceptional service and what is service, you know, in the industry in general, what kind of level of service do they do at Michelin star restaurants or, you know, so taking in all this that that excites people and that's stuff we can we can only do now that we have a certain scale and we have more money that we can put into into those things that wasn't possible when it was just the four of us uh, yeah and how long do we have to wait until there's a first coffee collective outside of Denmark I don't know it's still still a while uh I'd still say like we we really feel at home in Copenhagen um but at, at some point, I'm sure we will open up something abroad uh, just because it would make sense. It would be fun, I think, as well for us to to showcase it something else, somewhere else. But but there, I don't know, it could be five years easily. Uh, we, are, we are very patient people as well. Like we don't have the ambitions to go out and say, oh yeah, 500 coffee shops in five years or even 10 within the next year. Like it's perfectly fine for us to open one and then take a little breather, let that grow, make sure people are founded, make sure we have it with the quality and, and then then we can start looking for a new place. Mm. And that's also possible, I think, because you're 100% self-owned, right? Because yes. there's no one standing in the back door and saying, hey, uh, absolutely." <laughs> and that was a big part when we started out. We had We actually had like people who were willing to invest in us. And we decided that we didn't want that. It meant that we had to, you know, borrow money in the bank at, you know, really bad rates. And, you know, we had to, uh, our small shitty apartments, you know, uh, take loans in those and so on. And 
But it really meant that we we knew that down the line, we didn't want the risk of having an investor who would say, ah, you shouldn't pay that much for this coffee. We'd rather see some profit now. Well, we can say we care about product uh, or... Um, uh, What's the word? Um, profit, sorry. <laughs> See, I don't even know the word. <laughs> the, only reason we, yeah, <laughs> the only reason we care about profit is because it shows if we are doing a healthy business. It shows that we are on the right track and we're not being And you can pay about, the farmers. You know, we can pay the farmers way. better. And I mean, we can make... And that that's again one of the, like, where we show the beacon of that we can actually run a profitable, sustainable company while paying some of the highest prices that anybody in the world pays for coffee. We can be transparent about it. We can have, you know, union agreement uh, for our baristas as one of the only coffee shops. Um, we can do all these things and actually make a profit. It also means we, we don't pay ourselves the highest salary. Uh, our, our workers, our, I mean, I would like to pay them in more. We're at a good level, but I mean, nobody here, I think, comes into our company expecting to get rich. It's not like they see it and think, okay, this is uh, what's going to buy me a Porsche. Um, but at the same time, we really think it's it's amazing to be able to have built a company that's been profitable every year. Uh, it's only the first year of our company we were we didn't make a profit, and at that time we were close to being bankrupt. But we really uh, didn't pay ourselves a salary for like half a year, and then squeezed it together. And since then, I think we have that backbone of knowing it it can take some effort, but it can actually work out. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to know more head over to theidealists.co. As always, there's one more thing we ask our guests, which is, who should we talk to next? Oh man, there's so many. Copenhagen is just filled with so many super interesting people. Uh, one of my uh, like good friends and, and a person that I find continuously inspirational is Christian Puglisi, who has a restaurant Relay. Um, we became good friends when he moved into Jesbergade after we'd been there for a couple of years and just really hit it off. And uh, he's inspirational because he has the same kind of approach that it's, I mean, yes, he runs a profitable business. His chain of now also like four different restaurants, like we have four different coffee shops. They are profitable as, as one of few Michelin star restaurants. Uh, at the same time as being super hardcore on going all organic on everything they get in the door. Not just 90%, but every single thing. Um, and he keeps really pushing things. So if I had to name one, it would be him. 